Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The writer of Hebrews also says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us consider one another unto the stirring up of love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In Hebrews 12 In verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us, looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We've assembled a fellowship with God in his word tonight to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which means we have to pay attention to what he's told us. We have this marvelous privilege to consider his instruction, to weigh it for our application and experience, and then devote ourselves uh, with fresh energy and a renewed commitment to what he's told us he wants, and that is the reason for our assembly. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. We're told if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness for believers in Jesus Christ. This is the necessary recovery procedure from personal sin. And I want to remind you why the Apostle John tells us how to recover from personal sin. He says in 1 John 2, he says, I tell you these things, little children, so that you not sin. The cleansing is preferatory to walking, and the walking is supposed to be in dependence on the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, abiding in Christ in John chapter 15. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for eternal life, our privilege, our birthright, because of what Jesus alone has accomplished on the cross. We praise you for our so great salvation and our marvelous Savior. We thank you that despite the fact of having to be our sacrifice for a period of time on the cross, and then he was in the ground for three days, you raised him from the dead, and now he is at your right hand making intercession for us. And Father, our identity is in Him. We share all that He is and has accomplished, and we are in Him, glorified at Your right hand. We praise You for that exalted and lofty position and pray that as we look into the mirror of the Word tonight, we would not forget what it says about us, the marvelous high calling You've given us, the incredible uh, supernatural equipping from Your Holy Spirit, strengthen us through what He has revealed through the prophet Isaiah tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn your Bible, please, to Isaiah chapter 29, we find ourselves in our study of the prophet Isaiah uh, with a challenging uh, bit of Hebrew poetry, 
And uh, this is one way to kind of summarize what, what the Lord of history uh, portion is all about in the six woes of Isaiah 28 through 33. We're looking at the woe to Ariel and the woe to the devisers of plans without the Lord. And it's the same uh, recipient. And so we went from the fools, the drunkards in Ephraim and the fools in Judah in chapter 28 last time to Ariel, Ariel, that's Judah, and those who make plans without recourse to the Lord, uh, who is the Lord of history. And next time we'll look at the rebellious children who execute a plan not mine, that's the people of Judah seeking uh, Egypt as the solution to the Assyrian crisis. Uh, and then we'll uh, round out this study with that discussion uh, likely the next time as well. And this, this section of the text is asking the question, will you look past your national historical circumstances to the reason for them, to the one who is arranging them, to the God of history? We are not Judah in the 700s or 701 or so BC facing the Assyrian crisis. We're not that. We're not in 70, 20, 722 BC, the northern kingdom facing that same crisis. We are not under that historical pressure. They were, and God's admonition to them, as we'll see, is to trust him, is to have recourse to him, to quit ignoring him, to do what he's asked, to pay attention to his word. That message resonates with us very well because we don't really grasp all that's going on in our historical circumstance. But the more we look to the newspaper or whatever it is today, the more we look at current events and geopolitics, the more we can scratch our heads and say, how does this go forward without some sort of World War III conflagration? How can we move forward in any kind of stability in these times of historical uncertainty? And we've been... Uh, uh, <laughs> We've been dancing back and forth between seasons of greater and greater historical uncertainty for years. And the answer is you go to the Lord of history. God is in control and he is doing a work in our time. And he doesn't tell us through a prophet today what he's doing with the specifics of the national and geopolitical circumstance, but he certainly is. So in Isaiah chapter 29, we read here, I'll read in the New American Standard, Woe, O Ariel. Ariel, the city where David once camped, add year to year, observe your feasts on schedule. I will bring distress to Ariel. She will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. Everybody get the joke there? Well, we'll get to it. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. I will raise up battle towers, listen to it, and you will... Be brought low from the earth, you will speak, and from the dust, or your prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground, and your speech will whisper from the dust. But the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust, and the multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away, and it will happen instantly, suddenly, from the Lord of hosts. You will be punished with thunder and earthquake, and with loud noise, and with whirlwind and tempest and a flame of consuming fire. And the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold and who distress her, would be like a dream, a vision of the night. It would be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he's eating, but when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or when as a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he's drinking, when he awakens, behold, he's faint and his thirst is not quenched. 
Thus the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. Were we just reading about God's wrath on Ariel, on Mount Zion, on Israel, on Judah? And now he's talking about all those that are waging war against them. Yeah, it's the whole package. God's the Lord of history. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They became, become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with beer or strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep and has shut your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers. That sounds weird when he says it that way in the New American Standard. This is not just me translating things in, in Hebrew that sounds strange in English. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who's, who's literate, saying, please read this, he'll say, I cannot, for it is sealed. And then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. And then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from, far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. It is not yet just a little, is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest? On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see the afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel, for the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off, who cause a person to be indicted by a word, and snare him who adjudicates at the gate, defraud the one who um, in the right with meaningless arguments. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth. Those who criticize will accept instruction. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word in a very challenging poem in Isaiah chapter 29. A couple of themes that are jumping out at us if you read them are God's doom, God's judgment, and God's blessing, God's deliverance. I want you to remember that this one ends, it has some bitter notes, but it ends with joy. It ends with, um, with delight in the Lord. Woe to Ariel. Woe to Ariel is this great woe, and it makes us ask, who is Ariel? Ariel, the city where David encamped. And now we're zooming in. The city where David encamped. David had a lot of campouts. So what specifically are we talking about? This is a reference to Judah. uh, And more specifically, the city in Judah that is their capital, Jerusalem, which is also called Zion in this prophecy. And it used to be called Yebus or Jebus. And that was the land, the, the, the city of the people of Jebus. Does anybody know who the people of Jebus were? 
They were the Jebusites. Isn't that nice how that works? What, what about the people of, um, of uh, Canaan? What were they? They were the Canaanites. Okay, well, Prestonites. Uh, the city that David encamped is the, the city that he laid siege to when it was indwelled by Canaanites. And see, David of Judah conquered Jebus to take it over and rename it as it had originally been Salem and called it Jerusalem. And that's the, that's, that's the reference here. We're talking about the city where David encamped. Go ahead, add year upon year, let feasts recur is my translation. Yeah, just keep going through motions. One of the great themes in this that should attack us in our devotion to God is a religious, rote, performative worship, where I'm just doing something because it's what we do, cultural, we would call it today cultural Christianity. We go to church, we love the Lord, but we don't necessarily do what he said. We haven't figured out through the scriptures what he wants us to be about. And I mean, I'm just doing my best. After all, God's not expecting me to be perfect. I mean, I'm not, I'm not God, I'm not perfect. So since we can't be perfect, we'll just do our best. And um, is that what the scriptures teach us? Is that, is that the, the takeaway from the fact that you won't be uh, perfect? Be, be holy as God is holy? Um, actually, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're supposed to walk in the light. As he himself is in the light, you're supposed to uh, be pleasing to him in your thoughts, decisions, actions, motivations. And um, and any given moment, you can self-assess on that issue. So um, this is going to echo or, or resonate with us as we're studying, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, um, that this um, religiosity, this legalistic performative, this practice of we just do rituals. We take communion. We bow, we stand, we sing, we walk out, we don't swear, and we don't chew. Or whatever the rules are that we do and the rules that we don't do. And that version of a heartless, unintentional, uh, non-personal, non-relational religiosity. That's really the problem. And it was the problem back here in this day. Uh, Those that are not worshiping false gods are just going through motions with the the living God in his feasts. Go ahead. It's going to be fine. He says, I will cause distress to Ariel. She will be a city mourning and lamenting, and she'll be for me like an Ariel. Now there's your first little play on words an Ariel has two or three entries into the Hebrew lexicon. The first one, apparently there's a fella in Moab, a Moabite named Ariel. And uh, that's a problem in 2 Samuel. It's a problem passage. In 2 Samuel 23, is it, it's, it's about Benaiah, one of David's mighty men. And is it that he killed two of the sons of Ariel, the Moabite, or he killed two Ariels in Moab, in Moab that were lions, and because the word Ari is lion. So it's a challenge, and there's a lot of debate by scholars about that. But the first entrance into your dictionary is that it may likely be the proper name of a fella in Moab, a Moabite named Ariel. The second entrance is uh, another name, they'll say, for Jerusalem. And it comes from these two words, Ari and El, which I'll show you in a second. And um, um, 
probably is a reference to Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. And then the third entrance is um, this word the second time. And the, the challenge about this is that it's spelled the same way. It's a homograph. It's written the same way. Bank and bank. You know, a bank is a place where you draw money and or put money. Um, a bank is also a place where frogs live. But if you've got frogs where you're getting money, you're doing it wrong. You know what I mean? But it's the same word, B-A-N-K, and there probably is a derivation that, you know, we're depositing silt on the bank. Maybe, I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, that's, that's, that's how a homograph works. It's written the same way. Homophone, it sounds the same way, but it's two different meanings. And that's what you have here, uh, R-E-L. It's the same word, same spelling, same vowels, R-E-L. It's the same word, and it is, uh, they think, it means an altar of burnt offerings. And notice the theme now, religiosity. You keep on doing your feasts, Israel. Feast after feast, which is supposed to be a celebration. Feast doesn't mean mourning. They're not wearing sackcloth and saying, we serve Yahweh. We had to give a big offering, a big, a big tithe actually to put on this feast and we're miserable. Actually, the feasts mean what they sound like. It's fun, it's exciting, it's festive. It's a festival. They're celebrating God and his bounty and his uh, blessings for them. And they're worshiping him in joy and revelry and not, not, not debauchery. You can, you can rejoice in debauchery. You can rejoice in the righteousness and goodness of God. And that's the idea of the feasts. But they're not doing it the right way. They're not doing it. I'm sorry to say it kind of sounds a little bit trite, but they're not doing it from the heart. And so they're not really worshiping God. They're going through religious motions. This is our culture. This is what we do. This is how we live. And they're phoning it in. And so he switches from they're going to have their feasts in verse 1 to you're going to be like a burnt, an, offering, uh, altar, a burnt, an altar of burnt offerings. And what's that look like? An altar of burnt offerings. Think about that. The burnt offering, the whole burnt offering, Allah offering was the entire thing would be consumed by fire. And Allah has to do with the verb to go up, meaning all of it goes up in smoke, the burnt offering. That is a lot of ash and grease and mess and fire. And um, the burnt offering altar is a place of conflagration. And I think that that's a way of God saying, you're going to be ground zero for divine discipline in a heavy, heavy and kinetic way. And so this is God getting after Judah and saying he's going to discipline them. Now, um, anti-Semites will like the language that God uses in his opposition to Israel and Judah through Isaiah and Jeremiah. They love, anti-Semites will love to hear that the God with whom we must deal is angry at his children and he's going to send military invasion and he's going to turn them into, in some places, an ash heap. He's going to bring a, a whirlwind and a flame of fire. But as we just read, as it's kind of summarizing Isaiah 29, you can't be anti-Semitic. Those are God's kids. That's the apple of his eye. He has an eternal plan for these people and their enemies, those anti-Semites are all going to face the same judgment. But nationally, when they're arrayed, arrayed as nations and that's coming um, at, at the, um, the campaign of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo or the plateau. And so we have a lot uh, to consider here. Let's talk about Ariel. Ariel. 
This is an A. I transliterated A. The Aleph we usually transliterate as an A. It's a long story. <clears throat> I like to tell it to you sometime. See how this looks like a backwards R, like a lowercase R? It is a lower, it's an R. That's the one freebie in Hebrew. That's the backwards R, okay? And then this is a hyric yo, this dot and this little apostrophe thing, that yo, that yo, that yod right there, that makes the E sound. And then you have an olive again. See how it's the same shape? It looks like an X, but it's an olive. Well, in this case, it takes a vowel that says eh instead of uh, ah. And so you follow the vowel eh and then the lamid. That, this looks like a llama. Do you see the llama? The llama says, <laughs> eat the food, Tina. That's the llama. That's the lamid. Okay, so A-R-I-E-L is how you spell that. And I, I just thought that'd be fun for you to see. The kids are all enjoying it. You like that one about Tina, the, the llama? So Ariel. And, and notice, wait a second, that says Lara. Not a good girl name, but Lara is not the name. That's left to right. We're reading it right to left. A-R-I-E-L, Ariel. <clears throat> not, the, not a mermaid in this case. And these are the two pieces of this name, Ariel, A-R-I and L. Ari and L. And that Ari means lion and possibly lioness. It may mean young lion. It might mean technically hairless or, or maneless lion, which doesn't mean a female. It means that it doesn't have main, it could mean that which is interesting given Genesis 49, as we'll see, a lion and L. Who knows what L is? L is short for Elohim of God. And so the name Ariel, the best we can tell, is Lion of God. Everybody see my pretty lion? I love lions. Now, this is an interesting moment for Bible study method to think about something with me. When God made the lion... Um, I believe that he had known from eternity past about the fall. But I think his plan for the lion includes in the new heavens and new earth, no eating of meat, no eating, no animals killing each other. I think that's, that's the future. Not for us. We will have the millennial sacrifices in Jerusalem and Ezekiel 48, 40 through 48. We still have barbecue. But, but I think the lion's going to eat straw like the ox because the Bible says so. And I believe it. If you see the lion today in his natural environment, he's probably either resting or gorging himself on something very nasty and bloody from a, a horribly violent act of uh, athletic prowess uh, as the top of the food chain. I love the lion, but I don't like to see him covered in gore. I think they're beautiful. In fact, they're my favorite animal for a lot of reasons. The lion is kind of one of these superstars of the Bible in terms of the animal kingdom. He keeps showing up again and again and again. Now, what does 2 Peter, excuse me, I'm sorry, what does 1 Peter chapter 5 say about the lion? There, Satan is like a roaring lion prowling about looking for someone to devour. But when he said that, I want you to understand, he did not then give the lion the connotation of Satan or wickedness. The lion doesn't represent Satan. Satan is like a prowling lion looking to drink you, literally. Devour means drink. 
if you look at the Greek. And so if you see a lion eating, he's lapping at that. Uh, anyway, he's, he's, lions are disgusting when they eat. What I'm trying to say is that um, when, uh, when Samson killed a lion and then made a, made a riddle from the honeycomb that he found in the lion later, that didn't from then on establish the lion as um, a, a riddle or something. It was just something that happened in history. And um, I think C.S. Lewis was wise in his children's allegories to choose the lion as the image for the Lord Jesus. Aslan the lion. I think he was wise to do this because of the majesty of this creature, because of all the character qualities we're trying to establish in thinking about how would we portray a portrait, portray a portrait, how would you portray the character of Yeshua? How would you describe him? We don't have a picture to, to show people. How would, you, how would you portray him and kind of capture his essence, the dignity and majesty of of this massive, glorious animal would be one way. And that's what the Bible actually does. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5, even though he's the lamb who's slain in Revelation 4. And so, um, actually, in Revelation 5, he's both the lamb and the lion in Rev, Rev 5. So um, let's go to Genesis 49. I, I don't always do this when we're in um, Isaiah, trying to catch the whole thing. But I want to talk about this idea of Ariel because it's really important in the passage. And um, in Genesis chapter 49, in verses 8 through 12, you have this picture that God paints that takes us to the same, it points to the same destiny of this people, Judah, uh, in the prophecy of Jacob over his sons. In the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes, what I believe is given in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Jacob as a prophet. So you have, you have this inspired speech recorded by an inspired writer. And uh, Jacob says, regarding his son Judah, who isn't a great guy, I mean, he's not a perfect man, but he has a great uh, 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 descendant that's coming from him, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Now, who are Judah's brothers? Well, they're the other 11 tribes of Israel. It's the, this is the nation, okay? Your brothers will praise you. By the way, who's speaking? Israel, or his name, first name was Jacob. Then God changed his name to Israel, the one that strives with God. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. So you're, here's how you're viewed by others. Your brothers will praise you. Here's how your opponents are going to deal with you. You will have the drop on them. You're going to be victorious over them. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. That's the same as the first line. Your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons, that's your brothers. Why does it have to repeat so much? Apparently because we need to be told. And we need to be told again. And I forgot already. Can you tell me again? Yes, I'll tell you again. Judah is a lion's whelp. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. This is mysterious language. Is Judah an, an aggressive person? Is that what he is he talking about his character? No. He's talking about the destiny of Judah's tribe. Aggressive, victorious, valiant. Who's the great captain in Judah in the story of Joshua and the conquest of the land? Caleb. 
Caleb, who says, let us go have the hard part. We'll go fight it out. He's like a lion. He's going up for the battle. And this is the description of this tribe. The scepter in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. You see, in Genesis, not just Deuteronomy, in Genesis, they're expecting a king in in Israel. God is the king over Israel. He established that at Mount Sinai. The judges are God's representative to the people. There's a, there's a, 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 a sort of a regency, a gerency there where the, the judge, Moses being the first one, is the representative executive sort of military leader. They don't have a king. Samuel says when they ask for a king like the Gentiles, Samuel says they, God tells Samuel they've rejected me as their king. And, and it isn't you. They've rejected me, right? Because Samuel's the last of these judges. Well, um, this isn't about a judge. This is about a king. The rod establishing the right to rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He keeps doubling his son. He says it twice because that's Hebrew poetry. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And this is a mysterious word. There's a lot of controversy and emotionalism and mysticism and study that happens with this word. And the best we can do with Shiloh, listen, Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. The one that we're speaking of that gets the scepter from Judah and rules. This is messianic. Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah because it means in Hebrew, the best we can, the, the, the most likely meaning of this is the one to whom it is due, the one that has this as his due. The Psalm 2 Messiah, today I've begotten you as my son. Ask me and I'll give you the nations of your inheritance. The very end of the earth is your possession. You break them with a rod of iron. That's the, this is what we're talking about. The one to whom it belongs. That's what Shiloh means. So it would be better translated until the one to whom it belongs comes and to him shall be, see, to him, to Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, shall be the obedience of the peoples. Uh-oh. Where do we get the word Jew? From Judah. The people that want to subdue the Jews, the people that hate the Jews, really hate verse 10. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Oh, this is so good. See, all the nations are going to be ruled with, with mighty power and glory and righteousness by a Jewish king from the tribe of Judah. But I repeat myself. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then the description of the prosperity that comes to this uh, tribe and the tribe's great king. What will the kingdom be like, I think, is what happens in verse 11 and 12. He'll tie his foal to the vine. Doesn't that sound like great prosperity? I think the picture is that it's so prosperous and the vines are so thick and plentiful that you could tie off your mount to the, to the vines, to the, to the grapevines. And you're not worried about the crop. Yeah, just tie the horse right there. That's the picture. His donkey's colt will be tied to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. What is wine? It's the blood of grapes. It's fermented grape juice. What's this talking about? The the wine flows so plentifully in his rule. There's such great prosperity. That's the picture. His teeth are his eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. 
This is, this is all language to describe the great prosperity that's coming to Judah. If you're Judah, the guy, Judah, who uh, had a, a time of uh, indiscretion with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking she was a prostitute, that Genesis 38 chapter, Judah, the, the man, hears this about the destiny of his children, and he has to rejoice that we're going to be wealthy. Our tribe's going to do really well. And he has very likely no idea the significance of the messianic concepts that Joseph or that Jacob is presenting. Maybe he does understand. I, I, don't, I don't begin to presume on what they got from what Jacob said, but we, as we watch the scriptures unfold, we see the picture of the crown that has to come after the cross, the messianic rule of the Lord Jesus coming from the tribe of Judah. See, all the peoples will obey him. Genesis 49 Genesis, we're talking, we're talking 1446 BC. This is written 3,500 years ago. 1440s, this is written in the Exodus time. And, and when was it said? When did Jacob live that this was stated? So in verse three, back to our oracle of judgment on Ariel, I will encamp like David. Okay, this is, I'm gonna be controversial and you'll have to be, you'll have to be patient with me. The word here is kadur, like dur, and there, this would be like one of the only places that word occurs in the Hebrew text, and it's a weird use of that word, and they're like a big ball, like a big ball. I will encamp like a big ball. And so they say, well, a ball is round. Maybe he means a circle. He's going to encircle you. But we've already had David, and the difference between uh, this word, kadur, and kadavid is uh, somebody miswrote the resh and they should have put a dalit. So there's a tittle missing in the resh. That's what I think happened. Because he's already talking about encamping like David and it fits the context. I will encamp like David against you. And this makes them like the Canaanites when David brought the siege to Jebus to, to attack, uh, to, 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 to liberate the first time. And this is God saying, I am opposed to you because of your idolatry. And you, in this case, the context is your false worship. So I stand by the translation like David, the Septuagint thinks it's like David and the context makes it sound like David. So I'm going to go with that. And I could be wrong and I'm probably not. I will encamp like David against you, and I will lay siege works against you, and I'll raise, up battle, raise against you battle towers. And this language of elevation, I'm establishing siege works, and I'm raising up battle towers is very thematic because of what comes next. Remember the great theme in Isaiah is everything elevated against the glory of God to compete with him will be smashed and flattened, and everything humbling, everyone humbling himself before God is elevated. And that's 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Believers in Jesus, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so they promote you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Now watch what happens in verse 4. You will be made low. You will be brought low from the earth you'll speak. How low? Well, you'll be speaking like you're speaking out of the dust. From the earth you'll speak, and from the dust you'll in prostration utter your word. This is a challenging verse to translate. And it will be like an ove from the ground, your voice. And I don't know what to do with this word, ka'ov, ove. Some will say that, based on the Septuagint, that this is a certain kind of demon that speaks out of the dust. And uh, this is a mysterious word, and I have transliterated it into uh, English from the Hebrew. 
There are a lot of nouns in Hebrew that we still are not real certain about. I would not certainly develop an entire theology of demonology out of this word, but I would say that they are speaking out of the dust, like perhaps one of the spirits that speak from the dust. Makes me kind of concerned that we've got spirits speaking from the dust, but if you hear a voice from the dust, don't listen to it. And from the dust, your word will whisper. You'll speak like an O from the dust, your voice. And from the dust, your word will whisper. So you, you're not going to be able to, um, to be glorious and mighty. You're going to be humbled and lowly. And it will be like fine dust while we're talking about dust. He, he, he launches poetically from the dust that you're speaking from. Like fine dust will be the multitude of your strangers. The people overrunning your borders will be like the dust of the ground. And multitudes. That's the comparison there, like fine dust. And like chaff, which blows away the multitude of violent ones, strangers as compared to violent ones. Because, now this, is, now this is not hard to imagine, but it's hard for us to imagine, kind of. The worst thing that happens in world history that I can think of for, the, for a mass group of people, for a civilization, is that a foreign military power march on your soil unopposed. It's the worst because of the wickedness of man and his unrestrained restrained capacity to, to destroy man, and especially women and children. As we just saw, unopposed men destroying women and children in, uh, in Israel from this Hamas attack. We just, we just saw this, the worst. Now, we could argue about, well, I could think of worse things, but this one's specifically evil because it's collections of willing volitional agents called humans made in God's image, choosing to perpetrate moral evil on people that cannot defend themselves, that cannot stop it from happening. And this is the entire rationale, the entire rationale for electric boat. It's the entire rationale for General Dynamics land systems that make our tanks. This is the reason that we uh, register for selective service. Gentlemen, and, and th- this is why we're willing. If we need, we go. And this is why we go. Because a military force that marches unopposed on your soil is the worst. Now, I've recently uh, really enjoyed uh, uh, remembering and reading through uh, some of the history of the first war, our war for independence. This was largely a, a massive land force, a powerful military marching largely unopposed on our soil. And, um, and battle after battle after battle after retreat, they keep retreating, they keep retreating, they keep retreating, and they keep occupying. There were some atrocities that took place at the hands of the British, but not many. Why would they not commit atrocities? See, Pastor Dave, it's not so bad if a military marches on your soil. It's because they're the same culture. It's because the British are still Christian as a culture. It's fading fast, but they're still Christian. And the, the Americans are Christians. Not everybody's a Christian. Some of the, many churches were burned. Well, a number of churches were burned because the Black Robe Regiment, because they were considered to be um, seditious against the British crown because the entire war for independence was uh, largely motivated by the pulpits in the colonies. And so that there were reprisals 
and atrocities committed against civilians because of that. It did happen, but it didn't happen nearly as much as it tends to, as it did in many of the uh, wars on the European continent and, and generations before. It's the worst. And this is the description here. It's really bad news, and you never want it to happen to you. I never want you to have to face this in your history. <clears throat> when I was a trainee, um, I might have shared this with you, I don't know, but I was a trainee in, um, in the, I just, it's just a little, little nugget, little piece of experience, but as an armor school, I think it was, and um, we had a man in our class with us. We were just baby lieutenants. We were like, we had E6s sitting on chairs bolted at the top of the tank, and they would ride in these suicide chairs so that they could jump off if we rolled the tank or something. We were driving tanks. It was crazy. 23-year-old guys driving tanks. It was great. One of the guys in class, we were all 23, 24, recent graduates from college, um, with these seasoned non-commissioned officers putting up with us. And uh, it was a fantastic time. There was a man training with us from, I want to say, the Serbian military. And this is early 2000s. He had spent his entire adult life in war. And we thought he was really old. I don't think the guy was 35. But he had been in a war zone his entire adult life and part of his childhood because of the Balkan Wars. He had he'd been through that. He had grown through that. He was, I think he was a major in the Serbian army. And man, he had, he had the rings to show. He was tired. And we just haven't had experienced anything like this in our culture and our civilization. And we have what we call first world problems. The first world goes away when there's a military force on your soil. And the famine sets in. And by the way, it's not the, the rapine and all the trouble that comes directly from the military when there's war in your, in your territory. It's the, it's the famine. It's the loss of services. It's the death from disease that kills the massive uh, numbers of people that die in these things. It's really horrible. And this is what God said he's bringing in discipline, and that's what he promised to them as we studied before in Leviticus 26 and the five phases of, of God's discipline on national Israel. When they went into idolatry and rebelled against him, he would bring successively worse experiences and finally dispossess him from the land. And that almost happened with this, the Assyrian crisis that Isaiah is talking about. It will happen in an immediate instant, really fast, that you'll have this invasion from Yahweh Sabaoth, that's the Yahweh, the Lord, uh, creator, the one who self-exists of the armies. And I've just put it into English transliteration. You will be visited with thunder and with earthquake and great noise. There's a famous book called Plowshares and Pruning Hooks by D. Brent Sandy and a co-author, I forget his name, that suggests that Hebrew poetry is not to be read for its literal meaning because of verses like this. No, Hebrew poetry is big language for God to really get his point across, so you can't push the details of prophecy, they'll say. And here's the answer to that overstep in hermeneutics. You push the details that you can push, and you let his figurative language land as he intends. And when he tells you something in the future is going to happen, and the lion's going to eat straw like the ox, uh, you have to do something with that. You have to make a choice. And I believe the curse on the ground and the problem of the war within nature is going to go away when Jesus rules. But I also believe that God uses big, heavy language to describe the horror of his divine discipline. And this is something you really want to take away. This is the fear of the Lord, beloved. You don't want God's discipline. Nationally or individually, you don't want it. He knows how to get you. 
Better than you can get yourself and you can imagine, uh, uh, concoct a, a thing for yourself. You don't want God's discipline. Whirlwind and tempest, tempest and flame of devouring fire. This is God telling you, don't mess with me. Don't. And remember verse six, when, you, when it comes. Like, okay, I'm not really in an, in an earthquake or, or perhaps a, 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 a tornado, but that's in my life. It's, it's under pressure that I can't really sustain. I can't take this pressure. It will happen like a dream. Now, this is what's going to happen for, he's turning the corner on what he's going to do with these people that are attacking them. It'll happen like a dream, a night vision for all the nations who wage war against Ariel and all who wage war against her and her stronghold and who distress her. It will be as when the hungry one dreams. This is a funny picture that was tough to translate. The New American Standard did a great job. They always does. It will be as when the hungry one dreams, and behold, he's eating in his dream. Nom, 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 nom. Right? But when he wakes up, empty is his appetite. No food. I didn't eat. I had this delicious dream of eating, and then I wake up hungry. That's the idea. What, what does that mean? What's the image he's making for the invading army? They have this expectation, but it isn't fulfilled. We're going to conquer Judah but they won't. They won't be successful. That's the image. It's before us. We have this anticipation. We don't get the expectation. Or like when the thirsty one dreams and behold, he's drinking. Isn't that great? He's dreaming. Behold, in his dream, he's drinking. Oh, I'm so thirsty, but my thirst is being quenched in my dream. And he wakes and behold, he's exhausted. Now, I find this very interesting culturally. Their opposite of being... um, being quenched is exhaustion. Like the refreshment that comes from drinking. Uh, when, you're, when you're thirsty, you drink water, you're, you're enlivened. Okay, I can back, get back at it. That's the idea. Think of these people live on a camp out. Their whole world is camping. There's no, no sheetrock anywhere. And so they're living in the elements. So when they get quenched from their thirst and take a, take a minute to, to rest, now they can get back to work. That's, but no. You wake up exhausted because you're thirsty, and his throat is pulsating literally. And we th- say with thirst, thus will be for the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Zion. They expect, it's right, it's in our grasp, it's, but it's a dream. You're not going to have what you think, and you, you, you counted your chickens before they hatched. Delay yourselves and freeze with fear. Blind yourselves and be blinded. They're drunk, but not from wine. They st- now, now, verse 9 takes a kind of a turns the corner and he goes back to his judgment oracle after verse eight saying that they are not going to be successful in their invasion, even though they're going to discipline you and they're they're not going to bring it to full completion is what happens. So he says, delay yourselves and freeze with fear, blind yourselves, be blinded. They're drunk from wine. They stagger, but not from beer. They're drunk, but not from wine. They stagger, but not from beer. Now watch this image because God has poured out something. They're drunk on something besides beer and wine. It's from God's wrath. For Yahweh has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. Weird Hebrew construction. He has shut, he has shut, uh, he has shut your eyes. Direct object, your eyes, direct object, the prophets. And direct object, your um, 
heads, he has covered. What we're trying to say is that the eyes are appositional to prophets. And that makes sense. The prophets are called seers. And so you don't know what's coming unless God brings a prophecy to your prophet and then he tells you what's coming. Now you see what's going to happen. But your eyes are blinded because you won't get any prophecy because you're not going to be receiving any revelation from me. That's God's judgment on them. Now I want you to notice this theme and you have to take it by the themes as they arise. When God brings judgment on his people, he shuts down his revelation from them. He doesn't let them know what he's going to do. He doesn't, know, he doesn't let them understand his word. And he closes that revelation up. It's one of the ways God brings judgment. Now think about this. If you told um, American children in the 1980s, school is out forever, they would say that's what the song says. And everyone would be rejoicing. Right up until they realized they couldn't do anything because they didn't, have any, they didn't know anything. But school's out, yay. And that's where we are as a civilization, I think. I think we don't want the word as a people because it's work, because you have to do this kind of thing and think. We're not gonna sit and think for a solid hour. No way. No, 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 we can't do that. We've, been, we've read journal articles. We've read magazine articles. They were glossy, color photographed magazine articles that said for the two minutes that I could pay attention to the article that you can't pay attention for more than two minutes. We're not gonna study the word. Are you crazy? I've got important things to do, like school. We've got to go study the real things. And that's our culture. That's our civilization. You see, when God shuts up his revelation, he might do it in a lot of ways. But one way is that the people just don't want it. It's a common theme through God's dealings with man. It's one of the things we see in the history of Israel. And it's certainly going on in our culture in our day, even among Christendom, within Christendom assembling for the word is no longer assembling for the word. It's assembling for maybe a little bit of the word, maybe. Maybe a little bit of, of a, something fancy that somebody put together that makes me kind of feel something, but especially as long as we can have our concert. But, but this is God's judgment. He shuts your eyes by shutting down the prophets and your heads. He's covered and the heads are the seers. And so that's a way artistically, poetically of saying that you don't get to have revelation from God and you're shut down from it. And that's exactly what God said he would do with them in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to keep giving you revelation to take to them, and they're going to keep not being able to receive it. And that's going to glorify God as a judgment on his people. The entire vision will be for you like the words of the sealed book, which when they give it to the one who knows the book, saying, your Bible says to someone who is literate, literally one who knows the book. That's the Hebrew idiom for being literate. I know book. Okay, here's book. That's, here's the book. Read the book. Doesn't mean the Bible. just means read, being able to read. Please read this. He'll say, I cannot because it's sealed. This is a theme. Daniel 12, seal up the revelation. It's not for now. All right? Please read this. I can't for it's sealed, and the book will be given to one who does not know book or a book, saying, please read this. And he'll say, I do not know a book. So the people that can read, can't read because it's sealed. People that can't read, can't read because they can't read. And so the point is that nobody of all the people, and this is what God wants you to know from his word, are able to receive God's revelation, even though uh, it exists, even though it's sitting there, it's in your hand, like break the seal. I can't, I can't, it's sealed. I can't get to it. Imagine being in North Korea 
Recently in the news, we heard a couple months ago, a family that were found to have an ancestrally handed down Bible in Korean. I guess it's in Korean. It was a, a Bible. And it was found in, this, in the possession of these people. And the whole family was, was, was uh, interred and, and arrested, uh, some, some sentenced to death for having it, for just having the scriptures in their possession. And we don't value what we have. And we should, because why do you have access to the scriptures? Because God is giving it to you. And um, <clears throat> um, the, the tragedy of God's judgment being to this extent that I won't let you have my word. And then the Lord said, because this people draws near to me with its mouth and with its lips, it honors me, but its heart has completely alienated me. It has completely separated in its heart. The heart of these people has pushed me away, I think is a better translation than their heart is far from me. Their heart has alienated me, has actively rejected me. That's the attitude. So again, it's that same thing in verse one, keep doing your feasts, but it's perfunctory. It's just going for cultural religiosity instead of the heart. It's the heart that is the problem. So, and so their fear of me is the commandment of men having been learned. I know that your English Bible has a much cleaner way to translate that, but this is what the Hebrew actually says if you bring it in English. So you're dealing with Hebrew idiom, the way they speak. But their fear of me is, is, means the attitude they're supposed to have toward him. Did you know you're supposed to fear the Lord? Did you know that you're supposed to fear the Lord? Do you know what that looks like? It looks like what Jesus said. He said, don't be afraid of man who can only destroy your body. Be, fe be fearful of God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Some of us lack the fear of the Lord. It's evident, and we need to think about that. You think it's, it's the default setting throughout scriptures is the basis for all wisdom. You really can't live this life wisely without the fear of the Lord, right? He's the powerful one. He's the mighty one. He's the one that brings the wrath. Their fear of me, their worship of me is the commandment of men having been learned, meaning they're not listening to what I've said through the men that he's given them. They're listening to what people are saying about what I said. And they're adopting that as their basis for their worship of me. And there's lots of false prophets in Isaiah's day. And they've learned it. And your English Bible says by rote. That's good. Having been learned, Lamad, but in the passive, learned by rote. That is a horrible denunciation of people that should know better. I'll close on this thought. Hermeneutics is an important uh, consideration I once saw, I heard a man say that his problem with dispensationalists is that they use hermeneutics because he doesn't know what hermeneutics means because he's arguing with dispensationalists as a, you know, a person that's a supersessionist or he replaces Israel with the church and he doesn't know much and he's self-taught, but that's not very taught at all. And so he doesn't know that everybody has a method of interpretation. The problem isn't that we or they use hermeneutics, it's what hermeneutics do you use? And so... Um, that's like saying uh, the problem with you is you read words, you know, or, or something. But um, hermeneutics. Do y'all know what hermeneutics means? Little guys, young people, I know you're in the room. Look at Pastor Dave for a second. It's a big word. It sounds like a guy named Herman. Have you ever known a story about a guy named Herman? Well, there's a guy named Hermes in the Greek legends, in the Greek made-up stories. And Hermes is the one that interprets. He, he's the one that tells people what Zeus or the other made-up people say. And so Hermes gives us this word hermeneutics. He interprets. Hermeneutics means, and you need to learn this for your life, 
It is the principles by which you interpret a text. The practice of hermeneutical principles to interpret a text is called exegesis. And everybody does it. In the, in the Bible study where we accidentally and misguidedly say, what does this mean to you? That's not a good thing to ask. The question is, given what this means, how do we apply it to ourselves? How does this apply to your life? That's the question. But in terms of the question of hermeneutics, this people draws near to me with its mouth and with its lips, it honors me, but its heart has completely alienated me. What we tend to ask hermeneutically, and it's kind of a mistake, is what did this mean to them? What did this mean to these people? What did this text from the Hebrew scriptures mean to them? We just heard it. I asked the question, what did Jacob, what did, what did uh, Judah understand in Genesis 49? Now watch what I'm going to say because it's really important. Some of you are about to hear something that might challenge you a little bit. These people that Isaiah is talking about, that, that God is giving Isaiah this prophecy, they don't have a clue what God's word means. We're told this here. Their hearts are not attuned to God's word. They're not receiving God's word. That's his judgment on them. And we're talking about the entire civilization. Well, when? Well, look in the time of the judges. What are they doing? The best guy they can muster at one point is, one point is Jephthah. And then there's no guys. It's, it's uh, in one place, it's, there's no men. It's, it's uh, Deborah. And it's a, it's a condemnation on the men. She does it. She says, the problem is with you men. That's from Deborah's mouth. So when were they not receiving the word? There's always been a remnant, but the, the mass has all, the day after Moses goes up on the mountain, they start getting the jitters. They got to start making idols. What's the sound I'm hearing down there? Are they having a party? Oh yeah, they're worshiping false gods. What I'm trying to say is the question, what did they understand is not attainable to us anyway. And the answer in places like chapter 29, verse 13 is they didn't understand much. You can't adopt what did the original audience understand from the text as your hermeneutical principle because you don't have any access to that and we're often aware that they wouldn't have gotten it anyway. We see misinterpretation by the original audience all through the scriptures. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, or the scribes of Pharisees. Why? Why did y'all bring the sandwiches? Jesus is talking about leaven. Obviously, he means bread. We're supposed to have sandwiches. Did y'all bring lunch? That was their interpretation of beware the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus said, why are you talking about bread? I'm talking about the, the, the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. See, the original audience is not your guide. The text is your guide. And what the author meant by the text is your guide. And you don't know what the audience understood. And that's a really important principle in hermeneutics. And this, this is one of those places that shows you that. Even the people he's talking to aren't really getting it, and that's true largely of the book of Isaiah. And so, well, how can we think we're going to get it then? Well, beloved, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have every resource that you need, and the Word of God is alive and powerful, and it will do what he sent it to do in, in Isaiah 55. 
But I just want you to, to understand, this is one of the reasons that when someone says, well, what did the original audience understand? This is a way for liberalism to creep into evangelicalism and to say, we've, we've done some history, we've reconstructed some things, and we're going to undo our theology using historical reconstruction. No, sorry, it won't work. It won't work. The text stands. And what they understood from it, maybe they got some of it, maybe I get some of it, but what we're going for honestly, is what the author means by what he says. Our Father, thank you for the clarity of your word and the challenge of your word as we study this uh, exciting and daunting Hebrew poetry. Father, so uh, little taught, so little understood. And we thank you for the, for the, the, the big language. And we thank you for the, the uh, promise. And even when we get to the end of Isaiah 29, the joy that is promised to Jacob, to Judah forever and ever in the kingdom of Messiah. In Christ's name. Amen.